This is Anne Fremantle, introducing another of WNYC's PEN, P-E-N, portraits. What is PEN, P-E-N? PEN is an independent World Association of Writers. The initials, P-E-N, stands for poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists, and by implication of the initials for all writers. PEN was founded in 1921 in London by John Galsworthy, who became its first international president. American PEN was founded in 1922 with Booth Tarkington as its first president. The present president of international PEN is the old novelist V.S. Pritchett. The present president of American PEN is the young novelist Jerzy Kosinski. PEN has over 80 centres in 60 countries of Europe, North and South America, Asia and Africa. World membership is around 10,000. American PEN, which has its headquarters in New York but draws its members from all over the United States, has 1,500 members. Membership is by invitation of the membership committee extended to published writers of demonstrative accomplishment. What is PEN for? What does PEN do? PEN exists to promote worldwide friendship and intellectual cooperation among men and women of letters. PEN is a purely literary association working in a practical way on all matters of concern to writers generally. Better protection of literary copyrights, better deals for translators, workshops for beginning writers in underprivileged areas, lectures and receptions for foreign authors coming here. Josie Kosinski, the pre present president of the American Center of PEN, has just announced that the center will present annually the Ernest Hemingway Foundation Award of $3,000 for the best first novel by an American published during the previous year. The new award is donated by the Ernest Hemingway Foundation, established by PEN member Mary Hemingway in memory of her husband. This award is the latest expression of PEN's concern for the plight of the beginning writer who has increasing difficulty finding a publisher and readers. Penn has no politics, but it is against the imprisonment of writers for political reasons, and Penn members in the Penn Charter pledge themselves, quote, to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong. Penn is therefore against all censorship of the written word. Today, speaking over WNYC under the auspices of Penn, we have two very distinguished writers indeed. Charles L. Mee, Jr., whose meeting at Potsdam is the winter choice and the winter award of the Literary Guild, graduated from Harvard and worked for American Heritage. He has written several books already. Lorenzo de' Medici was his first book. And then Erasmus, which was published by Card McCann. White Robe, Black Robe was published by Putnam's. His new book, Meeting at Potsdam, which is the winter choice of the Literary Guild, is published by M. Evans. With, speaking with him is James Chase, the managing editor of Foreign Affairs. James Chase was educated at Harvard, and his first book was A World Elsewhere, The New American Foreign Policy, which was published by Scribner's. He is now at work on an autobiography. James Chase, managing editor of Foreign Affairs, and Charles L. Mee are going to discuss who runs the world, who rules the world, who ruins the world. Go to it, gentlemen. Well, <laughs> Perhaps Mr. Chase should begin. Well, I'd only like to begin by saying that the notion of who rules the world is most forcefully brought out in Chuck Mee's new book, Meeting in Potsdam, 
which after all was about the big three, who certainly appeared to rule the world uh, at the end of the Second World War. In fact, one of the things that fascinates me is, of course, the is a notion of misperception. Wouldn't you say that none of them really realized how Britain was not, in fact, going to be the power that it appeared to be at that time, including Churchill himself, perhaps most misled of all? Is that I, think, I think Churchill was, was perhaps the most misled of them all. I think that the Americans had uh, perhaps a clearer perception than the British did that England was on the way down. Certainly they had the hope that England was on the way down. And there was a tremendous amount of planning on the part of, uh, of uh, Americans in the State Department for ways in which the United States could assume Britain's role in the rest of the world. Particular interest in, um, in um, uh, Americans um, uh, breaking in on the Sterling block. And um, there was quite a lot of controversy about that at the time of Pot Potsdam. And, um, tremendous amount of concern on the part of the British that the Americans were doing that. But, they, but, but I think you're right that Churchill had not perceived really what, what uh, extraordinary straits Great Britain was in at that time. Well, isn't it the old question then, that I think your book brings out so brilliantly, which is the whole notion of perceptions and planning, planning for the war on peace, just like they always say generals always fight the last war. The French have building a Maginot line because they thought there was going to be a defensive war the next time. It turned out to be just the opposite. Weren't, weren't the big three at Potsdam also uh, thinking, wasn't at least in the back of their minds, Versailles, certainly in the back, I should think, of Churchill's mind and the Americans' mind, and uh, whether Stalin's mind, I don't know. But to what extent do you think they were trying to avoid uh, another Versailles? Well, they, they spoke about it often, and, and as you know, uh, they... Uh, they talked to one another about avoiding Versailles and avoiding a full peace conference. Well, did and they talk? It seems to me that they didn't talk, that it was that, that, that if I read your book correctly, Truman himself uh, kept hidden from uh, Stalin and Churchill the very fact that he had absolutely no intention of going to a Versailles, whereas the other two, as you write it, unless I misunderstand, you seem to be at least open to the notion of a Versailles. No, you're quite right. Yes, of course. No, I'm, I meant that the American planners spoke among themselves about avoiding a full peace conference. There are a number of memos in, in the briefing book that Truman took with him to Potsdam addressed precisely to that subject, to avoiding another Versailles. Well, what were they afraid of? They felt that Versailles Wilson had been done in and that... Uh, why do you think they wanted to avoid this peace conference? Well, of course... That's not too clear in the book, if I may say so. Yeah, I, I think that... Uh, I think they wanted to avoid it because it was <clears throat> it was clear to most Americans and certainly the wish of Truman's that uh, America was on the rise and was going to become a more powerful nation, that uh, Great Britain was on the decline, that Russia was in dreadful shape at the end of the war. <clears throat> it was clear that America's fortunes were on the were on the rise, and of course Henry Luce declared that this would be the American century. And so turned I out to be wrong, didn't he? He turned out to be quite wrong, but I think that I think that um, the Americans felt if they if they entered into a full peace conference, and and reached agreements uh, to which they would then have to be bound, um, it would uh, it would not be as advantageous as leaving problems open and resolving them ad hoc as they came up. 
still, I question whether or not the United States saw things quite so clearly that it was going to be top dog. Obviously, Russia looked a good deal weaker than it probably turned out to be because of the post-war use of, of, of the satellites that Russia using their uh, materiel. But didn't the United States also think, not only in terms of Versailles, but weren't they also fond on the notion there might well be a depression, which as I recall there was very briefly in the early 20s before the boom years, and that the breaking into the sterling block, among other things, was not only to impose American hegemony, but the fact that they, they, they were afraid of uh, recession, unemployment. In other words, they were all wrong. That the planning was all, the thinking in the post-war era was all, was all skewed. We've had, we, we well, had until very recently, as you know, an unprecedented boom from 1945 until uh, two or three years ago. Sure, I think, you know, but uh, the, I don't think they were all wrong, James. I mean, uh, they were certainly wrong about some very essential matters. That you're quite right. They were afraid of a Great Depression in the United States, and um, and they were certainly uh, uh, incorrect about that perception. There were a number of other fantasies, I think, and sheer fantasies that were that were going around. However, they were not essentially uh, uh, misperceiving the opportunity for the United States to grow at that time, and uh, they were not misperceiving. Uh, an opportunity for America to extend power into those areas where Britain had formerly had the greatest influence. Surely um, the uh, hegemony of the United States was perceived very early. I, I read in Aldous Huxley's memoirs that as early as 19, 1919, which was wasn't that the year of Versailles? Indeed. <laughs> uh, he said that uh, what World War Two, World War One, had done was to establish uh, the United States dominion over the whole world, and this was written in 1919, not in his autobiography many years later. And surely, uh, Mr. Truman must have realized quite early on that America was the greatest power in the world. No? Yes, indeed. Indeed, Roosevelt himself during the war spoke of four policemen running the world. Uh, at that time, the four were the United States, Russia, China, uh, and Brit Br Britain. Uh, a peculiar notion of four people uh, controlling the world, I must say. But still, again, the fact that, that uh, the United States uh, had a global role hmm. was certainly perceived by uh, Churchill and Roosevelt. And I would think probably uh, that there was... An if not an open eagerness, at least a subconscious eagerness to take over the British Empire... In any case... Uh, sure, the, I, I think there was an open eagerness to you do. do so, sure. I mean, a, a, an expressed eagerness to do so. And if you, if you read the English uh, journals of the time, you see that the English were, were very upset about it. Uh, I remember particularly a piece uh, that appeared in The Economist uh, at about the time of the Potsdam Conference, where, um, where the, the writer, whose, whose name I forget at the moment, pointed out that, uh, that American arrangements at the end of the war were meant to break in on the Sterling Block, looked as though they were going to destroy the Sterling Block, looked as though uh, uh, Great Britain was going to suffer uh, uh, grievously from an extension of American power in the world, and um, um, the man was mortified. So I think that, uh, that, that, that the notion that America had global interests and, and wished to uh, maintain or, or even enhance them was, was hardly a, a secret at that point. How many weeks actually, excuse my interrupting you, but I, I'd like to know how many weeks actually did the Potsdam Conference last? 
Well, it lasted about two weeks, from the mid middle of July until the first of August. That's what I thought. It was, it was very short, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Wonderful anecdotes you have in the book too during the conference. I love the stories about the music, uh, because uh, both Truman and, and Stalin quite liked classical music, and and and, and Truman was not a bad piano player and liked Chopin, mm. etc. Whereas Churchill loathed music because he because he couldn't talk. There's a wonderful <laughs> story that Chuck tells about that Churchill had his night to entertain everyone. He said, "Well, now we've had all this." Uh, Chopin played for the last two nights, both at Stalin's reception and at Truman's reception, so I'll get the Royal Navy Band or something, and they had these <laughs> deafening uh, sort of marches throughout, because Churchill couldn't abide uh, quiet nocturnes in the evening. But you know, in the book, you make it all seem to me a little less of a muddle than I think uh, peace conferences tend to be and statesmen tend, tend to act. I, I'm afraid I take a rather... A, Tolstoyan view of things. Nobody quite, Napoleon never really knew what was happening in the Battle of Borodino. Alexander really never saw what was about to come. Kutuzov blundered about, uh, rather like uh, Fabrice in the beginning of the Charter House of Palma, where he stumbled across the, the, the Battle of Waterloo and never knew he was in the Battle of Waterloo and how important it was until, until much later. You make things at times, it seems to me, Jack, may I say, a bit, a bit schematic. Uh, for example, one, one of the other important themes of your book, if I read it correctly, is not only that the United States had absolutely no intention of going to a full-scale peace conference, that Truman very craftily and consistently concealed his, his intentions from both his still putative closest ally, uh, uh, Churchill, mm -hmm. as well as from Stalin. But then the other point, of course, that's so important to the Potsdam Conference, and which you quite rightly, I think, focus upon, which, of course, is the use of the, the atomic bomb. That is, say, the knowledge that the bomb worked, which Truman received while the conference was going on. The point you make is that Truman thought he had a terrific uh, weapon, not only for destruction of Japan, but also as giving the United States a great deal of leverage over the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. But in fact, was it all that clear to, to Truman? First of all, he hadn't seen the explosion. He'd gotten this note from Stimson, from, and, from, and Stimson turned from Las Vegas about what happened. He was excited about it, but did he, he, he did, did he, could anyone have known really what the impact would be before Hiroshima, except perhaps those people in the desert themselves? Secondly, was the United States that certain that Japan was so on its knees that they wouldn't have to use the bomb? Was, was it as diabolic as it's, I'm afraid you make it seem? You, you use the word, we were wanton murderers. Well, were we really wanton murderers, or were we not that sure Japan was not going to fight on, that we had to use this weapon? Was it, wasn't it really perhaps thought of, even if incorrectly, as just a bigger bomb, and not with this tremendously global... Uh, uh, implications of control, no, I don't, political I, control. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I certainly don't think so. Of course, you've raised you've raised several issues, and one is how much of a general muddle a peace conference is. And of course, <clears throat> in many ways, a, a peace conference or any diplomatic gathering is a great muddle, and many of the issues are lost in in great confusion. However, certainly not all issues are, and the one issue that seemed to be a great muddle at Potsdam, but was not a great muddle, in fact, was not a great muddle to Truman, nor was it to Edwin Pauli, who handled the negotiations, was the whole question of reparations from Germany. And 
Jew. The, the reparations uh, from Germany uh, uh, are the issue over which Germany was effectively divided. Seems to me that that um, that Truman's and Burns' intentions and Pauli's intentions going into that were quite clear. Their intentions remained clear through the negotiations. The muddle occurred, of course, because they got a tremendous amount of resistance from the Russians on that issue, so that much of the negotiating is is muddled. But never is there a never is there a loss of of uh, the, the sense of the um, aim. Um, the way which you did get at Versailles, unlike Versailles, where you did get a real loss of the yeah. aim. I mean, I mean, Wilson really did completely go awry, yeah. and this was not true. I mean, Truman Truman knew what he wanted. You, and, and stuck with it pretty much. Yeah, I mean. not, see, and, and that's the other thing. That's I my question about the bomb, though. I, I well, that's right let's, on reparations. Let, let's, let's, go back, let's go back on that some more, though. I think that, that what you also get from most peace conferences are a sense of muddle in a lot of the memoirs because a, a lot of the people who are at the conference don't have any idea what's going on. So a lot of the diplomats who were at Potsdam wrote their memoirs and spoke of a muddle when it simply meant that they weren't part of the negotiations, when it meant uh, uh, Cadogan, permanent undersecretary for foreign affairs of Great Britain, said, ah, oh, they're talking about reparations. I haven't any idea what they're talking about. The whole thing completely buffaloes me. Well, he didn't understand because, of course, he wasn't part of the negotiations. He was intentionally kept out of them. Um, so part of, the sense of, part of the sense of muddle is real and, and part of it isn't. On the bomb, on, specifically on the issue of the bomb, though, um, I think that uh, I think that Truman had a great sense of the impact of the bomb. Um, when Stimson read the report to Truman and Burns at Potsdam, and there was quite a vivid report sent on from General Groves, attaching descriptions of the explosion and so forth. Um, Stimson's voice trembled as he read the report. It was quite clear that he understood the import of the thing. And it was quite clear, I think, that, uh, that Truman did, because then it was observed subsequently in, in plenary sessions that the president was tremendously pepped up. In but the, what good did in, it do? Okay, then, then, we, get, then we get to that. Uh, but, but first of all, wh whether there was any sense of an appreciation of the power of the bomb, I, I think there certainly was. I think that's, that's clear from the record. What the bomb actually achieved is, is, really, a, is really a very moot point. Um, Charles Bowen said to me when I when I talked to him shortly before he died, he said that he came back on the plane with um, Admiral Leahy, I believe, and they were talking about what could be done with the bomb. And Bowen said, you know, there's really not a thing you can do with the thing unless you just go ahead and drop it. Otherwise, you're you're reduced to sitting there uh, uh, threatening and bluffing. And essentially, that's what what Truman did. I think it did him. Um, very little good in terms of uh, in terms of an attempt to extend American influence. Now, Burns said that the reason to drop the bomb on Japan was not for its effect in the Japanese war, but to make Russia more manageable in Eastern Europe. Do you now, believe that? Wh whether whether that succeeded or not, in fact, I think is a moot point. You know, to, to was what, that, to more, what extent? More to the point, though, was that the reason that the bomb was dropped, though? Oh, sure. I think so. You do, you do? Yeah, I think, you know, look, you, you look at the advice that the military men were giving to Truman at Potsdam, and Truman went systematically through his military advisors. Eisenhower thought it was a, it was a positively uncivilized thing to do, to use the bomb. 
the Navy men said, look, all we have to do is, is, um, is blockade Japan and the war will end. Um, what about the I Air mean, Force men? <laughs> uh, 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 the Air Force men said that conventional bombing would end the war. The only one who, who did not say very clearly and forthrightly the bomb should not be used is General Marshall. His advice on the question was completely ambiguous. So in terms of the military advice, the best Truman was getting was ambiguous advice on the bomb. And I think that the diplomatic question is the one that finally, uh, finally uh, assumed the greatest importance. And why mind. two bombs? Well, I, I think that's a very good question. I, I think that Doesn't the, that seem wanton to you? It does alone seem, one. Yeah, it does seem wanton to me. It certainly does. But Truman said at the end of his life that he would drop it again, if you remember. Um, he said, if I had to do it again, I would make the same decision. So obviously he didn't think it wanted. Well, it's, you know, I, Truman certainly had a very great interest in, in justifying the decision to himself, if to no one else. I think it was uh, obviously a, a tremendously difficult decision to make. And I don't think that um, Truman was evil incarnate by any means. So, um, so the decision he made, while I think it was a brutal and cruel decision, I'm sure gave him a great deal of trouble. But, but I'd like to pursue this just a little further. If you say that the bomb was dropped the first time, on the second one, I must say, I do find very difficult to find any justification for it. But for the first, the first one being dropped, you say was to demonstrate to the Russians more than anything else the. Uh, what the United States really had, even though, in fact, in the terms of the conference, it didn't get us anywhere. Well, that's, that's, what Bur that's what Burns that's what said Burns was said. the reason for dropping it, sure. Okay. But why didn't, if we, if we were so eager to keep the Russians in their place, not necessarily in Europe, but particularly the Far East, mm -hmm. why didn't we accept what were pretty reasonable Japanese terms in before we dropped the bomb in order to keep Russia out of the Japanese war, which oh, well, we also claim sure. we didn't want the Japanese in the... In the, in, in the, the, uh, the Russians in the, the Japanese war, sure, but that's a crucial, yeah, that's a crucial question. Uh, and and I, I think that one of the reasons we did not uh, accept the Japanese terms at that point was because the Japanese terms, don't forget, were, were being uh, forwarded through the Russians. The, the essential negotiating was being done by way of Moscow. The essential offers that the Japanese made were to the Russians. And there was a tremendous amount of reluctance to resolve any issues by way of the Russians, because that would bring the Russians into the negotiations over uh, a settlement of the Far East. And Truman was certainly eager to avoid that. The, 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 uh, the use of the bomb, uh, to, to, to the extent that it, that it had anything to do with the end of World War II, um, uh, it ended, I, I think that there was some interest in, on Truman's part in ending the war before the Russians were able to get into it. Right, uh, but, but you say, but he didn't do this by accepting the Japanese conditions. Oh, no, certainly not. Which you could not. have done earlier, which were, after all, uh, weren't very uh, 
Uh, in fact, the conditions we, the unconditional surrender, and finally, finally had the conditions in it that the Japanese were proposing for for, for quite a while. Sure, which was essentially the retention of the emperor. That was the sticking point. But I guess that's why I, I, I'm I, I'm I'm feeling that things were even more ambiguous than, than than you do. I'm not completely sold on the notion, despite what Burden said, because we all know that everybody writes their memoirs uh, in, in in exercise of self-justification. But, Bur but Burns is quoted as having said said that in, um, I believe, May or June of 45. So, so that's not his memoirs. That's, be that's before the Potsdam Conference that Burns is said to have said that. That the, the point that, that I mean, to drop the bomb would be essentially a diplomatic weapon. That's right, right yeah. Well, I stand corrected then. Despite, nevertheless, the dating of the thing, the fact of the matter is that we're saying what Burns thought. Sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm simply putting forth the notion that possibly Truman was not that sure that he didn't have to use the bomb in order to shorten the war to save American lives, which is which has been his own justification, as I recall, mm -hmm. but may well have been in his own mind, the truth, and also not to uh, allow the uh, Russians to get any further than they were already at that point. It was very hard to keep them out when they were, in a sense, in places I, I imagine very close to Manchuria, if not already in Manchuria. Oh, when, when, when they were, all, when they, in fact, it was impossible exactly. to keep them out. I, so it was a fait accompli that he was uh, acquiescing in, like, to a certain degree. Well, n but but not entirely, James. You're you're come on. You're pressing you're pressing the issue too far at that point. Of course, the Russians were involved in the Far East. The question was to what extent were they be going to become involved mm -hmm. in the termination of that war. To what extent were they going to occupy Japan? Mm. I mean, come on. Sure, that's actually right. I, we're getting we're getting into a greater muddle than the diplomats did at Potsdam. I, you have to you have to go back too and 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 ask yourself what sort of influence did Burns have on Truman? Right. Uh, and uh, what do you think? I think? Well, I think that's clear too. I think Burns was the was the kind of politician. Don't forget, Burns was not a professional State Department man. He was most unaccustomed to to this kind of diplomatic bargaining. He was known as the great fixer in the Senate, and he was a great fixer and a very tough, shrewd bargainer. And all the way over on the Augusta to Potsdam, Truman closeted himself every morning with Burns to talk about what they were going to do at Potsdam. It's clear they went through that briefing book in great detail. Their, their handwritten notes are in the margins, so it's clear that those conversations went on between Burns and Truman. And it's also clear that Truman excluded a number of people in the State Department, people whom I personally admire, I, for instance, Stimson, uh, people whom I think would have brought to Potsdam a really subtler sense of diplomacy, a subtler sense of, of suasion rather than force. And um, I think in, in many instances, Truman excluded himself from the kinds of diplomats who might have mollified these differences between Russia and the United States, and almost invariably took the harsher alternative, and often the most provocative alternative. Well, I think it's very clear in your book, I, I wouldn't quarrel all of that, Chuck, that, that the way in which you bring out Truman's closetedness with uh, Burns and Leahy to the exclusion of the professional diplomats, to the exclusion, to the exclusion of, of State Department professionals, of the exclusion particularly of a man of Stimson's wide knowledge and experience, yeah. and, and therefore made these kind of decisions, uh, a deux, as it were, mm -hmm. certainly meant that they probably were fairly clearly thought out, particularly in terms of reparations. I was pressing a bit on the bomb thing, because I was trying to find out myself if 
the Burns statement mm -hmm. was sufficient proof for you to feel that from that point on, given the other train of events and what yeah. was said, that that was a pretty high key. Right. We only have one minute, so would you answer that one quickly? <laughs> well, just uh, and, and we You're talked right. about Good. that. I, th yeah. I think it's I think it's clear from the record that that indeed Truman did restrict himself to a very tightly knit circle of advisors. Can I ask you a quick question, sure. which you answer yes or no? Do you really think, given the nature of life, that with two great powers like the United States, the end of the end of the war, that no matter you're, what happened, the Cold War could have been could have been adverted? Yeah, right? you're incorrectly phrasing the question. <laughs> the could could could. Is it inevitable that two great powers like Russia and the United States compete for power in the world? Absolutely, yes. Is it inevitable that they conduct a cold war? Absolutely not. I accept that. <laughs> uh, well, I'm very thrilled with this fascinating discussion, and I just want to remind everybody that uh, when Oppenheimer saw the bomb, uh, um, he quoted the Sanskrit uh, phrase from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the light of a thousand suns, and uh, the man standing next to him made the comment, that makes sons of bitches of us all, <laughs> if you remember. Thank you very much indeed, Charles Mead Jr., for talking about your book, Meeting at Potsdam, published by Evans, which is the Literary Guild choice for this winter. And thank you very much indeed, James Chase, Managing Editor of Foreign Affairs, for a most profound and serious discussion of uh, whether who, who rules the world or who runs the world and who ruins the world. We leave it to our listeners uh, to make up their own minds on this subject. These two gentlemen spoke under the auspices of PEN Penn over WNYC. Thank you very much, both of you.